Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Today we have Dr. Keith Erickson, a former assistant professor of history at the University of Texas, El Paso, former assistant to the president of that university, and currently director of the LDS Church History Library in Salt Lake City. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Erickson. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. One of the purposes of LDS Perspectives is we want to bring historical knowledge and historical understanding to the broader Latter-day Saint listenership, membership. We want to make it accessible to the public. In order to do so, we'd like to bring in people who don't just have experience studying history, but they also have experience like putting history out there, making it available to the common man. And my understanding is that that's been a major part of your work so far. So would you tell us about your various endeavors in bringing history to the public? Yeah, I've always felt very strongly that, number one, history is already out in public, and yeah. number two— that there's a lot of really great things that can happen by acknowledging that and building on it. My research has gone in those directions. I've written about historical commemoration, remembering Lincoln. I've also written about contemporary controversies about curriculum, teaching at a university. That's a great place to encounter the public. One of my favorite classes was the Intro to U.S. History Survey at UTEP. I taught a section of 300 students every semester, and none of them wanted to be there. They had all come to school to be engineers and nurses. You know, out of 300 students, there might be two who would be a history major. But that was, for me, the challenge and the excitement of it. How do we make this connection? I've worked also with uh, school teachers. I had a hand at the university in in the teacher training program and then following up as they went out and taught in schools and doing professional development with teachers. I've worked with the National Park Service staff, with genealogists, as special witness in court cases. Really, wherever history could be found or needed, I've thought, let's go there. Let's see what we can do. So it sounds like you have extensive experience dealing with historical matters outside of the LDS tradition. That's true, yep. Most of my experience and training was there. My master's thesis was about the Joseph Smith birthplace monument. I did that at BYU. And then after that, my training and focus were other areas. What kinds of lessons do you think that students of LDS history could take from those who specialize in fields outside of Mormon studies? Oh, that's a great question. Probably the first thing I would say is, and I know this runs against the grain of everything we think about ourselves as being a peculiar people and a special people, is to say, we're not so different. We have challenges with our history, and the same challenges exist with every other history. There are sources that are missing from Joseph Smith's experience that we wish were around. Well, there are sources missing from Lincoln's experience and from Washington's experience. That's just how history works. The past is gone. It's not some great conspiracy that Joseph Smith's sources are gone. That's just what happens. The past is past. And so in the present, no matter what we're talking about, 19th century, Middle Ages, We're trying to reconstruct it and put it back together and figure out what it means. Speaking to that, as director of the LDS Church History Library, you play the leading role in managing records, deciding what is available and what is not. 
And there are records that most Latter-day Saints could not get access to unless they have some sort of special permission or dispensation, as it were. So what are the rules that you implement to decide what records are made available and which ones are considered really not appropriate for general readership? That's a question that we could spend a long time on. Maybe some of the basic principles would be to start with some of the origins of the rules. We are, in fact, are not the originator of all of the rules. There are legal regulations that pertain to some of the things in our collections, uh, external regulations. Sometimes donors will put a restriction on a donation that they make. I think my favorite example of that in all of history are the Abraham Lincoln's personal papers. His son got them upon Lincoln's death and offered them to the Library of Congress with one condition, that they would remain closed for 21 years after the son's death. So the son dies in 1928. Lincoln's papers don't open until 1949. But who would turn down? Who would say, oh, no, we really don't want the Lincoln papers. Send them somewhere else. We're working with a lot of those kind of factors, that the way things come to us. There are also then considerations about content. And again, some of these have legal stipulations. If there's information that's private or personally identifying information, which we have in various databases and records of the church, might help just to frame that we do keep all of the records of the church, not just old pieces of paper from the 19th century, but the last keystrokes that you typed in your membership record or something, the electronic records, the contemporary records. And so across the whole scope of the collection, there are definitely things that we take care of, that we treat very securely. Other things that are sacred in nature, things about the temple, about the types of things that go on in the temple, the activities, the ordinances. That's maybe a thumbnail, but it's really kind of case by case, record type by record type, and figuring out how we protect what we need to protect and then share what is really exciting and beneficial to share. Now, I just want to know when I'm going to have the chance to touch the sword of Laban. I mean, can you hook me up with that? You know, that is an interesting question. Can I counter it with a question? Please do. Because I get asked this question all the time. Every time I talk to a group, they ask that. And my counter question is, what is your evidence that it's even in mortal stewardship, right? The gold plates are given to Joseph. He's the steward for a while. He gives them back. There's some back and forth. The sort of Laban is only ever seen in modern times. To me, it's fascinating where the idea that it was ever transferred. The three witnesses talk about seeing it. Joseph makes reference to it. But unlike the gold plates, we don't have any so I'd use our archival terminology, there was no transfer of custody. It never went into mortal hands to pass down to my hands. So yeah, that's in another archive. It's not in mine. <laughs> Some kind but of heavenly archive, if, if perhaps. If you ever want to make a transfer, I'm ready. We'll definitely make that transfer. They won't need to twist your arm. <laughs> nope, I'd be willing. This speaks to kind of the general sense that church archives are sort of a mystical place, you know, that there are all these secrets buried and all you need to do is go in there and you're going to find out some major revelation. Would you speak to that yeah. kind of mystical shroud that hovers over the archives? Yeah, I think it's just a function of any place you can't go becomes a mystical place. The principal's office is scary at school because you rarely go there. I can tell you that inside the archive, it's really kind of boring. It's concrete walls. They're fireproof. We have movable shelves. They're metal, just like the sort of standard movable library shelves. It's climate controlled. We have 
acid-free boxes. You go down the row and you see a copy of the Book of Mormon. You see Together Forever, a video from the 1980s. Our mission is to collect everything by and about the church, and particularly for things by the church. That means we want every copy of the scripture in every language, in every edition. We want every handbook. We want every manual. So in some ways, the inside of the archive looks like the library in your local church building, except it's a little more organized and the scriptures aren't all destroyed because deacons played with them. (laughs) So you say that the insides maybe look a little bit boring, but the contents are anything but boring. Otherwise, you wouldn't be involved in what you're doing. What has been the most exciting thing that you have personally discovered over the course of your Mormon history research? Wow, exciting. I think the most exciting things that we have, frankly, are things that we've been able to put on display in the library over the past two years. We have put a page of the original manuscript, the Book of Mormon, on display. A few years ago, Elder Holland held up a copy of the Book of Mormon that Hiram Smith read during a conference talk. That's on display. We just put out one of the fragments of the Egyptian papyrus. Those had never been on display, and so there's one out. The letter from Liberty Jail is on display. In a weird kind of inside-out way of thinking, some of the coolest things we have are actually right there on display because those are things people ask about. And so we said, we just need to put them out there. You were in Texas several years ago when there was the most heated moments of a major textbook debate about how history textbooks should be written and how the Texas State Board of Education would oversee the writing of those textbooks. You've published some on those debates, and it dealt with some fairly sensitive and hot-button issues ranging from slavery to the discussion of world holidays. I'm interested to see What lessons did you transfer over from your experience as an observer of those debates to your current position as the director of the LDS Church History Library? Oh, that's a good question. You talked about the debates being heated, which is sort of an understatement. There were death threats. There was a lot of money involved, very politicized. And so sometimes I will see people getting exercised over a question of Mormon history And thinking that there's this great debate and great drama, and when I see it in the context of statewide debate in which both sides are mobilized and politicized and there are death threats, I think, well, you know, it might not be so bad, such and such question that we're debating. That might be one takeaway, is that our history is not as exciting as we think it is. It is exciting, but if that's all you ever think about is oh, there's this question of Mormon history, that question. Well, there are questions about all kinds of history. And you see it in that context and you just say, oh, wow. Civil War questions. I mean, we were debating questions there about slavery and states' rights and very powerful uh, opinions about those. People willing to ignore the historical record and assert states' rights was the cause of the Civil War. You say, well, look right here at the Declaration of Secession. They talk about slavery themselves. But those are very powerful narratives that have wide-ranging consequences in our modern society. Do you see people within the Latter-day Saint context who make similar claims? You had people in Texas who are insisting in defiance of the historical record that it is states' rights that caused the Civil War. What are some similar mythologies that exist within our study of Mormon history? Sit through any Sunday school class, you'll hear something. I always joke when one of the high priests in the ward says, 
we were sitting around at the temple the other day and talking. I just say, whatever follows, you know, there's going to be something in it. Yeah, we have all kinds of crazy little ideas and folklore. and Most of it's well-meaning, people trying to make a connection, trying to connect their ancestor to Joseph, but they overreach the facts and the record and lots of little things to correct gently and whatever. So. Maybe some more ordinary ones. You know, how the Kirtland Temple was constructed, right? Or how oh, sure. you know, sometimes their fine ware was broken down. Do you know something about that mythology? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you knew this. I actually wrote a piece about the Artemis Millet, the historical figure around whom those stories are told. In that particular case, a couple of stories about the Kirtland Temple. The glass turns out to have just been any glass that was available, not necessarily fine china. Those particular sets of stories originated in the, as far as I could tell, in the 1880s. As the generation who was involved in an event, and this happens in Lincoln studies, it's happening now with World War I, World War II. As the generation that's involved starts to pass away, there becomes an awareness. Oh, the, well, we're losing something. We got to catch it. And a lot of times we've already lost it. By the time we start going to people who are really, really old and who are just little kids on the sideline and have a vague kind of fuzzy, yeah, I think I saw Joseph riding a horse through town. And then that turns into something. The people who are close and really in the know, they'd already passed. But it's the trailing edge when we say, oh, we've got to capture this. And a lot of times it's too late. You see, this speaks to an interesting uh, purpose of the Church History Library, at least as far as I'm concerned. I think of the quote by the great historian Leopold von Ranke, where he hoped not to judge the past or to try to use the past to instruct the contemporary world. He just wanted to show what essentially happened or what actually happened, in his words. I'm curious if you see the LDS Church History Library serving a similar role. Is it meant to teach the saints about how to live their lives? Is it meant to preserve the past? What is its essential function? I would probably make it not so lofty as Ranka thought and just say we preserve records. The past is gone, and all we can really preserve in the library are records of the past. Some of those records are created the same day in a journal. Some of those records are created years later as a reminiscence. I'm under no illusion that what I have in the church history library is the past. I don't have a spring day in April 1820 preserved in the archive. I have records, sources about it, things Joseph said, things people recorded hearing him say. So that's where I would put the purpose. We keep the records. And then from that point, I think it becomes a modern function. In the 21st century, a being who lives in this century, who has the values of this century, who has the concerns and questions and tools of the 21st century, we dig into those records and what do we find? We find what we're looking for. We pull out lessons. Lessons aren't like a rock that's sitting on the ground. That's a dialogue that somebody has. They read a source. They think about it. But at the same time, they're thinking about our present setting and our needs and what's going on. In the 21st century, we make a connection and we say, the thing I see in the record has a lesson today, but that's intellectual work that I'm doing today. Joseph never left a document that said, in 2017, this is what you need to think. The founding fathers never left a document. In fact, the founding fathers said, we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Let's set up a constitution that you can amend and change and adapt. For the big purpose question, I keep it more focused. We preserve the records, and then we dig into them. 
What can we do with them with curriculum in the church? What can we do with them to answer questions? What can we do with them in general conference talks, in church magazines? How can we go to the records and make sense of them for our time, for our generation? As you say, history is already in the public. It's out there with a click of a button. You can find a million hits, right? And it's so easy for us to start to consider ourselves amateur historians in some way. But frankly, most of us neither have the time, the resources, nor the training to do it properly. The overwhelming majority of us, we work in finance, we work in law, we work in in the healthcare field. This is kind of a side hobby. What is the advice that you have for those kinds of people where, on the one hand, they want to be aware, they want to be somewhat critical consumers, but on the other hand, they've got other things to do. Yeah. You made a good point about it taking a lot of time. That's why I think one of the things that is most often missed. There was a show called History Detectives that was on years ago, ran for several seasons. It was really fun. They would find these mysteries and put them together. But one of my biggest criticisms of the series, it was a half-hour episode, so they'd spend 10 minutes getting into the problem, and then there's time for commercials, right? And then there's 10 minutes where they reveal the answer. And what they left out of every episode was the 400 hours in between figuring out what the problem was and then doing the research, putting it together, packaging it, and being ready to give a 10-minute, here's the answer to your challenge. And so it really, really does take a long time to find the sources, to transcribe them or translate them if they're in other languages, put them together and find holes. And then you find a hole by saying, you find a letter that says, oh, I'm responding to your letter. So now there's a hole. You say, where's that other letter? And they all don't end up at the same place. One is in this repository. The other one's across the country. The other letters are on the other side of the world. And so pulling all of that together does take time. The advice on the ground, I think, for readers and critical consumers is to be aware of how history works and then to be on the lookout. And there are signs. And sometimes it's visible right in the history that you're consuming. Uh, One of the most basic ones is source citations. And they're not there just for fun. They're there to say, I spent 10,000 hours to write this sentence You know, and there are times where I would spend a week in the Library of Congress so that I could write a footnote about Abraham Lincoln. And that was just part of... So you watch for the signs to see that the historian, the writer, the producer, whatever you're where you're engaging, do they take the time? Do they they show that they're taking the time? Are they thinking history is not a reactionary sport? It's not about reflexes. It's not about speed. The pass is over. We got time to think about it. Have they thought about it? Have they thought through different possibilities? Are they critical of their own sources? Are they questioning? Was this person there? How do they really know this? Why are they telling the story this way? And if you see those signs, you kind of can gain trust of your author and the publisher. It's not just the author may have done a lot of research and the publisher will say, we're sorry, we don't publish footnotes then you might say, that's not a publisher I want to follow when I'm really looking for a substantive answer. about." So there's more than just the researcher, but if you start to see those signs, then you start to trust that. There's just a smell test. If you're not a historian all the time, then you may not be able to articulate, this is wrong because they forgot to look at that archive in Germany, which has all the correspondence. But you can still say, this smells funny. This feels one-sided. There's something hollow here. 
And that may be enough just to say, I'm going to go look for something that feels a little more solid. You mentioned this smell test. Now, there are historians or even regular individuals who tend to be rather critical of the historical claims of the LDS Church. They would say that the kinds of tools and criteria that you've laid out could be used to undermine the historical claims of the LDS Church. How would you respond to people who would make that criticism? I would respond in two ways. The first would be the history of the LDS Church— is built upon sources and stories and evidence just like any other history. We need to use the tools that we have. We need to be critical of our sources. We need to read widely. We need to corroborate stories. Everything that we have, I think we should use. I think we would also add in this context that there are other kinds of evidence that we look for. Prayer, answers to prayer. Answers to prayer are not typically specific, If I asked a question like, here's a historical question, can you show me where the source is? More often answers to prayer and historical questions, I think, come from you do a lot of research, you put it together, and then you get sort of that confirming sense. Or sometimes you get the nagging feeling. It's like something's missing. Something isn't quite here, and how do I keep working on it? But we have the privilege, the opportunity, the responsibility to engage the Spirit, to ask for divine help. As an historian and a scholar trained in academic method, trained in archival research and in critical thinking, is it fair to say then that you would consider this kind of evidence, spiritual impressions, intuition, to be qualitatively equivalent to the documentary record that we seek out in the LDS Church History Library? I don't think I would put them that stark of a dichotomy, that there is a category of historical evidence that is unassailable, and a category of spiritual evidence that's faulty because we have historical evidence that has problems. There are forgeries, there are frauds, there are errors, there are misrememberings. You have to understand the nuance of the historical record. And quite frankly, there are spiritual evidences that are fraudulent, that are crazy, that are incoherent, together with some that are very moving and deep and personal. I'd rather not categorize them as historical evidence or spiritual evidence, but look for the best spiritual evidence. Look for the best historical evidence. Put those together and just get a better answer. We're not going to get the past. Capital P, capital P, right? The past, right? Right. We're going to get a little bit here. And then a few years from now, somebody's going to find another set of letters in their attic and it's going to shed a whole new light on something. And so it's okay to fix it up and say, wow, this is what we learned. In Lincoln studies, because his personal papers were locked up, there were two generations of scholars who wrote knowing that in 1949, a whole flood of information is going to come forward that might challenge what I'm writing. And I think without the specificity of a major collection that is about to open, I think we would all do well to know that There are things that will come forward. I mean, even as Latter-day Saints, it's right in our doctrine, right? There are many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God that will be revealed. So you flip that coin over, that means there are many great and important things that we don't know right now, that we don't understand, that we don't have the full picture on. We always like to say, well, history is 2020, hindsight. No, it's not. We're just here in 2017 and we're doing our best. And then 
there's going to be something we discover down the road that will help. We're working at digitizing records so then we can start applying some of the big data kinds of tools. We're going to be able to see connections across thousands of records that we could never see before. That's going to bring things to light that we didn't have today. We didn't have last year. We didn't have in the 70s. If we break that mindset that we know it all and just say, I'm looking for the best I can find, and tomorrow I'll find a little more, and next year I'll find a little more, then we don't get discouraged when something changes because that's the way it works. It's always changing. We're always learning. And what's funny is we believe those things out of one side of our mouth, line upon line, here a little, there a little, progression. And then on the other side of our mouth, we say, well, no, we have to know everything about this and that. It's okay not to know things. And the search for knowledge is built in the very fabric of the Latter-day Saint tradition. Now, let's say that you are teaching a Sunday school class, and it's on the Doctrine and Covenants, church history, and there's an individual in class who raises their hand and says, you know, I have studied issue X. Now, it could be something like race and the priesthood. It could be something like polygamy. And they say in class, this genuinely bothers me, right? This does not accord with my value set, with what I believe Mormonism to be about. What do you say to them as a Sunday school teacher in that moment? Well, the first thing I would say, because I sincerely feel it, is I would be thrilled that they were saying that in that setting. There's so many classes, so many settings where we'll put up a wall around ourselves and say, or give off the impression that we never doubt, that we don't have any problems, that all our children are perfect, that our house is always clean. We build up all these barriers. So if I had a class where someone was willing to say that, and I often go home from a teaching experience, and, and that'll be one of the things I'll feel pleased with. I'll say, wow, we created an environment where people were comfortable saying, I don't know. This bothers me. I have a hard time. Part of that environment is who you are and the rapport and how you talk. I believe that part of that environment is the spirit. And when you feel that peace and that safety. So the first thing I would say right there would be, Something along the lines of, thank you, I'm so glad you've said that. I'm sure many other people in this very room have that same question or a similar question that's prompted the similar kinds of study and longing and wrestling. And I would really want to encourage questioning and wrestling and thinking. And then I'd throw the rest of the lesson out because this is going to be far more important. And actually, I do this in almost all of my teaching. I say, if you have a question that you want to ask, let's ask it because... We can say stuff that's written here or stuff that's interesting to me. I'm the young men's president in my ward now, and I tell it to the priests. I say, if you have a question, let's talk about it, because if that's what's on your mind right now, let's address it. And then next week, there'll be something else on your mind. Let's do that. Let's take care of these and get you ready to go. And so a lot of times what I find with these questions, the next step I would do is we'd probably back up. People will get a question that's right in the middle of something And I usually will back up and start with some wider context and then help to see what the question is in in context. And that's without a lot of detail. That's the approach I would take. But I I would consider it a great honor if somebody brought that question up in class because where else should you get to do that? Why should we get together for one hour every week in Sunday school if we can't resolve the questions we have and keep progressing, move forward? To close, you know, there's a phrase that you used in one of your publications. You said this, the phrase, quote, all I need to know I learned in kindergarten, unquote, works far better as a bumper sticker than as a governing education philosophy. How can we leave behind 
what have been our cherished myths, our common folklore, our our fables in some cases, and instead embrace a mature, well-developed faith and well-developed understanding of our history. One part of that is to acknowledge that, to go back to that metaphor, what I learned in kindergarten was useful and valuable and served a purpose. I think a lot of times when people think, I want to do a more sophisticated study of history, they assume, and this is a 21st century assumption, there's nothing in the record or anything that says this, they assume, if I become more sophisticated here, I have to throw out everything I ever did before. Everything I thought as a teenager, everything I thought as a missionary, I'm getting rid of that because now I'm doing something. In reality, I think we continue to grow. You have a child and you say, don't touch that, that's hot. Okay, that's important. That keeps them from getting burned. Then you move into, well, don't jump in that puddle. You're going to get dirty. And then you say, well, go get baptized. If the child is just sitting there thinking, the lesson is I don't get in water, then it doesn't make sense. Now you're telling me to get in the font, but you're telling me not to get in the puddle. You are a messed up adult. You're not being consistent. Part of what we need to recognize is that The instruction to not get in the puddle was useful at some times. The instruction to get in the baptismal font is useful. They're not exclusive. Something that helped me as a teenager, as I was struggling, that's important. I recognize that as a tender mercy. Something that happened to me in graduate school as I was dealing with a really kind of thorny issue or complicated theoretical point, that continues to be helpful and a tender mercy. If we see it as progress and go line upon line— Just because it worked in kindergarten doesn't mean it works now, but just because it worked in kindergarten doesn't mean I should get mad at it and say, that only worked in kindergarten. I'd say, great, that helped me in kindergarten, and now I'm somewhere else, and I need some other additional kinds of help. I appreciate what you said about being ready to leave behind knowledge that may have been useful but was only provisionally so, and then then move on to... If you will, I don't know if I'd use the word advanced, but maybe more nuanced and a more mature understanding. Sometimes it's more nuanced. Sometimes it's uh, just different. I mean, just different. Sometimes it's more clear and defined. Yeah, it really just you leave yourself open to what do we encounter next. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Erickson. We're very grateful for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.